prepare for the ministry of God's word, if you would please open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. There's a custom here to stand as God's word is read just before it's proclaimed. Please join me in doing that now. We do that, set it apart from the ministry of the servant sent to proclaim it. This morning we're going to read together Acts 5 verses 12 through 32, and then consider together the power of freedom. The grass withers, and the flowers outside will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever, so his people strive to hear and to heed it faithfully together. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, excuse me, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent them to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Thus far the ministry of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, how much do we need your help? Our hearts need it. Our minds need it. Our bodies need it. And you are gracious and able to give it. So help us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that glory would be given to the Father, the Son, and to that Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In 1913, an old black woman died in Auburn, New York. She was one of nine siblings who grew up in the South. And as a young lady managed almost miraculously to escape the cruelties of antebellum 
slavery and made her way to the north. Upon arriving in the north and realizing the great freedom that she had just begun to enjoy, she could not help but think about those whom she had left, her siblings, friends, and others, and she would voluntarily, mostly on foot and mostly by herself, return to the south and free 70 slaves and help them to make their way to the north. She took 13 trips to do this, and if you know your American history, you ought to know her name. Her name is Harriet Tubman, and what she is famous for is, has been nicknamed the Underground Railroad. What's the point? There's tremendous power in freedom. There's tremendous power in freedom. And everyone in this room has tremendous freedom. And the question of the day is, what will we use it for? We're going to work through our text with the help of the outline that you have there. The first point is God displays the power of the gospel. <clears throat> in many ways, Acts 5 is about the growth and the growth pains of the church. God is at work. God is at work in and through his people. He has not simply blessed them, but blessed them to be a blessing to others. Such is the nature, when you think about it, of every Christian's life. God has blessed us, but not simply for us, but rather that in blessing us, that we might be a blessing to others. This is not only the Christian's life, it is the life of the new church in Acts chapter 5. Signs and wonders, we are told, are regularly being done by the hands of the apostles. But we should never forget the place in history of these signs and wonders that were being done. These miracles were temporary, even to the book of Acts, only performed at particular times and particular places, never described as normative until the end of the age. There's something remarkable about their place in history here as the word of God is being given, but not only at that place in time, but even by the limited number <clears throat> of people that are doing it. We are told that these miracles of signs and wonders are being done by the hands of the apostles. They were signs, and signs always exist to point to something, or in this case, to someone else. The someone is God, and the something is the power of God to save people. Even the location where these signs and miracles are being done is important. We come now, uh, once again, back to Solomon's porch. We spent a lot of time on this porch. Time, in some ways, must be elapsing now. As we turn pages of scriptures, you must uh, imagine now uh, that days, if not weeks, are transpiring in the narrative. In the meantime, people, as they gather, have been selling their property and coming back and giving the proceeds thereof to the apostles. In the last chapter, we saw this, or last section, we saw this event where Ananias and Sapphira had time to go and to sell their property and then come to Peter and to lie about it and to both be struck down together dead, perfect couple with the most imperfect ending. It appears now that the apostles and even the early church are regularly attending to the temple. They keep going back, and, I, and I've given this quite a bit of thought. There's something interesting here. I, I could be wrong, but I'm venturing uh, out to say it once more. Uh, that there's almost like something of a church planting strategy that unfolds here in the book of Acts that might strike you as a little bit odd and dangerous. But if you notice the pattern through the book as a whole, what do the apostles do everywhere they go? They go to the temple, they preach, they get either kicked out 
were put in prison, and then they used that public stage as a forum to preach the gospel. It's a brilliant strategy. I don't know if it'll sell on a seminary campus or sell many books, but you can't deny the strategy, or at least what keeps happening over and over. Their persecution becomes a stage on the open square to declare the gospel of God. Luke adds now, uh, as this is happening, a sobering note, a little bit of a pause or reprieve, as he says, none of the rest dared to join them. The story of Ananias and Sapphira likely shocked this young church. Not simply those who were in the church would have heard about it, even those who were outside. And so you begin to sense this contrast, almost like Luke is drawing a line between two types of people, the many who joined the church, men and women, and yet others uh, who dared not to join them, who took, if you will, a a safe step back. You see that sometimes uh, in a dynamic where some people lean in and others, for personal safety's sake, lean out. The holiness of God had just been displayed in Ananias and Sapphira. The judgment of God had just been displayed as well. What was the point, the sobering point? God would not be mocked by half-hearted insincerity. And the apostles were capable of seeing and hearing through lying lips. Behind the scenes, we were told in that story that Satan ultimately was at work, that he was the great deceiver, filling the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira to lie to Peter, to lie to God, to lie to the Holy Spirit. But God is righteous and all-knowing, a holy judge, no toothless tiger. Why were people stepping back and many not daring to join? Because they recognize, in a certain sense, God was not to be trifled here. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes uh, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Lucy <clears throat> asks about Aslan, who is a, a character depiction of Christ himself. And Beaver is speaking. And he says, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And so Lucy asks, then isn't he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. In Acts chapter 5, God is not safe, but he's good. He is righteous, but he is not to be trifled with. He will not be deceived. He is the king. Yet in the midst of their faithless reluctance, Many, Luke tells us, continue to join the church. In fact, more than ever is the precise language that he uses. And when you think about it, uh, more than ever in Acts chapter 5 is a big deal against the backdrop of earlier chapters. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 souls were added on the day of Pentecost. That's quite an in-gathering. At the end of that chapter, it says that the Lord was adding to the church day by day those who were being saved. Again, icing on the cake. This verse suggests that God is adding even more, more than ever, more than the day of Pentecost, more than the day by day that the Lord was adding. After the death of Ananias and Sapphira, the church doesn't shrink, it grows. When sin is taken seriously and dealt with righteously, the church grows. Great sinners, as you know, and as we all are, need a great Savior. 
And that's why so many were coming to the Lord. It wasn't just the miracles, but there were miracles. And some of them uh, you might even describe as rather strange miracles. Apparently, Peter and the apostles are so on fire with the Spirit uh, that they're healing left and right, everywhere they go, everyone they touch. So much so that people are lining up in the streets hoping, and this almost just seems you know, fantastical, uh, that, that the shadow of Peter would simply fall upon them that they might be healed. That's a following. 1427, <clears throat> artist named Mosaico depicted this in an oil painting, uh, but he got it perfectly wrong. In the oil painting, Peter is walking out in front. There are two cripples uh, down on a street corner and only four men behind Peter. And Peter looks pretty cocky in the picture. Uh, he's got this papal little hat thing on him. And it's entirely wrong. Uh, it's wrong to suggest that there were only a couple cripples. The text says that there were abounding with many. It's wrong to think that there were only four people behind them. The apostles were there, let alone this great gathering of the church. And it's most incorrect to refer to Peter as the Pope. What is on display here is not the power of a man. What is on display here, rather, is the power of the gospel itself. In many ways, this is the new creation on display in the midst of and through the old creation itself. It is the power of the age to come. It is a preview of heaven, where Satan's power to deceive, as displayed in Ananias and Sapphira, has been shut down. The serpent of old has been struck a deadly blow. God's power to save through the preaching of his word and to give life is seen in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira's lie. But even the signs that Peter and the apostles are now doing, signs that interact with the curse, think about it. What do sin and sickness and demonic possession indicate but the presence of an evil foe? And so here are the apostles, by their hands, casting out the reality of sickness, the reality of oppression, the reality and the sting of sin, all dispersed, sent away, if you will, by signs of the coming age. The gospel power, however, is not all that we see on display in our text. We also see the power of unbelief. The power of unbelief. And so let's go now to our second point. What are the two things that Satan knows? What are the two things that Satan knows? Here, here are two things that he clearly knows. He knows the power of the gospel, and he hates it. And he knows the power of jealousy, and he loves it. Satan knows the power of the gospel, and Satan knows the power of jealousy. The church was growing, but the clouds were gathering. Satan may have filled the hearts of Ananias to lie, but he's also filled the hearts of the leaders of Israel at this point in Acts chapter 5. You see them rising up together. That's literally the language in verse 17. But the high priest rose up. It's almost as though uh, you're marching along in the narrative, in the story, and then something forcefully intrudes its way into the story. This is happening, this is happening, this is happening, and someone stood up to oppose, and he was the high priest, and all who were with him. And we were told that they were, the language I think is quite intentional, they were not just jealous, they were full of it. 
They were filled with jealousy. We've heard this word now before. If you go back to verse 3, it's the same word. When earlier in verse 3, Peter asked Ananias, why has Satan, notice the language, filled your heart? Not simply put a little pepper on it. Filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Here's the point, beloved. What you see in Acts chapter 5 is not a cute little story. It's a cosmic battlefield. Spiritual warfare is at play. The chief priests and the gathered council with them arrest and imprison the apostles. Uh, This is still early in the book of Acts, and already the second time Peter has gone to jail. This fellow would have great stories as an old man, except he didn't live to be one. But the gospel cannot be chained. Another miracle takes place sometime in the middle of the night. An angel comes and enters into the prison, opens the doors, and sets them free. The phrase, the angel of the Lord, is a very, I'm not sure how else to say it, it's a very Old Testament phrase. It's used in divine encounters when God is speaking to his people on occasions, like when he speaks to Abraham and calls him out of Chaldees. Or on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, when Abraham almost offers up his son in sacrifice there. It's an angel of the Lord that speaks. Or when Moses sees a burning bush, it's an angel of the Lord that speaks. Or in Israel, is at Mount Sinai, an angel of the Lord is there. But notice that it's not God here speaking indirectly. Excuse, excuse me, try it again. It is not God speaking directly, but indirectly, if you will, through his servants. If you look at verse 20 in particular. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. If God wanted to, he could have just spoke from heaven all the words of this life. If God wanted to, he could have sent the angel to the temple to speak the words of this life. But God uses means, and the means that he uses to gather people and to spread the gospel is people. And so that's what he does. He says to the apostles, go and keep preaching. So what do they do? They go straight back from jail to the temple where they were arrested to preach again. Now, when you think about it, these guys are really dense. I mean, after all, who gets out of jail and goes right back to the crime scene to repeat exactly what they just did as the sun is coming up. This is foolishness in the eyes of the world. Some people just don't learn, or do they? Where would you go if you were just set free from prison? They might have gone home. They might have gone to get something to eat. They might have ran for their lives and just tucked and bailed. Instead, they go right back to that crime scene, that gospel crime scene, and they keep preaching. But others in the text are slow learners as well. The high priest returns, and he's not alone. He has the council with him, and the Senate, all combined, as you learned before, is called the Sanhedrin, the full council of Israel. This is a major trial, but in many ways a kangaroo court. Only one problem, uh, they are all gathered and ready to have a trial, but their prisoners are gone. There's been an angelic 
prison break in the middle of the night. The scene is almost comical and yet unnerving. They send the captain of the guard to the prison for them. This is a public jail. Likely others could have been in it. The guards are still there. The doors are still locked. One obvious problem, however, the prisoners are gone. Yet another miracle. So the captain of the temple comes back and he reports what has happened. And it says uh, very interestingly that not only he, but even the chief priests were greatly perplexed and they wondered what this would come to. Is that faith? No. That's simply amazement. There's a big difference between the two. They were perplexed. I'm going to pause here and just pull this thread a little bit more. You've sometimes heard this phrase, seeing is believing. But when you think about it, is that true? Do people really believe because they see? And do they see everything they believe? Unbelievers will sometimes say, show me and I will believe. Yet what have you seen here already at this point? Miracle upon miracle. Eyewitness beside eyewitness, an angelic prison break. The guards are still there. The doors are still locked in a public jail, and at best, they're perplexed. Huh, this is weird. I wonder what's going on. Seeing is not believing, beloved. It takes the spirit to open the eyes of the heart. Someone comes and tells them, those guys that you locked up last night, by the way, like, you're not going to believe this when I tell you. They're not simply out of jail. They're back at the temple exactly where you arrested them, and you won't believe it. They're still preaching. The high priest, blinded by his jealousy and unbelief, summons them once again and questions them once more. Here you see, beloved, very importantly, the apostles are on trial. John Calvin has a a great point on this. God promised his people blessings, but he never told them that they would come without persecution. Once more, the apostles are on trial, but in a certain sense, they are free. When you think about it, standing once again before the council, technically speaking, they are free. Free to deny or free to testify about the gospel, what would you do? What do they do? Well, that takes us to our third and final point, the church displaying the power of freedom. The high priest rehearses what had been spoken the day before, his prohibition forcefully given to the apostles. You were strictly charged not to preach in this name, And yet you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. Two things of note. One, how offensive is the name of Jesus? A little or a lot? How offensive is the name of Jesus? Think about just the polar opposite reaction that people have to the name of Jesus. The Christian exalts his name, sings of his name, rejoices in his name, loves his name. The non-Christian hates his name, opposes his name, is offended by his name, doesn't want to hear his name. You want to make a a polite introductory conversation with strangers awkward? Mention Jesus. Watch their faces change. The game changes. The mood shifts. 
Why? <clears throat> High priest unpacks it very accurately. Because you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Who is guilty of the death of Jesus? The high priest, the Romans, all of us, you and me? The answer is yes. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The name of Jesus, beloved, when you think about it, is disdained and hated because it's always associated with the cross. You can't say the name of Jesus without thinking about the cross. Even for an unbeliever, you can't say the name of Jesus without in some way thinking about the cross associated with his name. It forces man to deal with his sin. It convicts him of sin and judgment. It casts light on what I'll nickname our comfortable darkness. It tells us truths we prefer not to hear. It exposes lies that we would love to believe. What does Peter do in this moment when he has a shot at freedom? He uses his freedom to proclaim the gospel. In a certain sense, beloved, he surrenders his freedom to preach the gospel, and that boldly and clearly. Commentators describe verses 30 and 31 in our text as some of the clearest gospel language in the entire book of Acts. It's a summary. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The phrase God of our fathers is a beautiful name. It is a covenant name. It is a way of saying the God who made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph the God of the people of Israel, but is also, beloved, a resurrection name, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God and Father of those who are not dead, but living. It is a resurrection title for the Father in heaven. It is he who raised Jesus, whom you killed. This is piercing truth. You've killed him, and yet at the same time, uplifting hope. He whom you killed, the God of our fathers, has raised, and not only raised him, didn't end there, but he made him, beautiful language, leader and savior. Not just savior, but even leader. This is the same word used in Hebrews 12, where Jesus is referred to as the captain and the overseer of our souls, the one who has gone before us. Not simply the first fruit of fruit to come, but a leader of those whom he is saving our leader and our savior, our Messiah, the hope of Israel. And even his plan is here in a summary way unpacked to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. How should they respond? How should we respond? With repentance and with faith. This exposes, beloved, what I want to describe to you as a few different versions of freedom. First of all, I want you to notice that an unrighteous civil magistrate commanded the apostles to stop preaching the gospel. And the question is asked again, shall we obey man or God? And the answer is clearly given and embodied as the apostles say, we must obey God. The civil magistrate cannot tell us to sin, and the civil magistrate cannot tell us to stop doing righteousness, particularly preaching the gospel. 
But there are other forms of freedom that are in view here. In a certain sense, you might say it like this. The high priest, the unbeliever, is free to stay right where he's at in his unbelief. He, or if you're here today as an unbeliever, you can keep lying to God all you want for now. You can keep lying to God. You can even keep lying to yourself. But if that is your plan, please make sure you read the whole chapter, including the story that just went before. Because the God of the universe will indeed judge righteously. And the wages of sin is death. God cannot be mocked and truth will be exposed. The believer, beloved, has a far better freedom. The apostles embody it again in verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Don't be perplexed by the word obey. It's a synonym for belief. They are obeying the gospel in faith. They are doing what God has told them to do. And I want you to ask you a question as we are, are, are making a slow reach for the runway. Where, beloved, in life do you find the greatest measure of freedom? Where is true freedom found? Do you know where true freedom is found? It's in obeying God. When you think about it, the alternative is not free. It's just a different form of slavery. It's actually a different form of religion, a different idol. It's submitting to another God. Either the idols of comfort and ease, pleasure in sin, or a very ungodly dark power. The apostles have made it very clear they must obey God. The Christian, in a certain sense, is called to the same thing. Our freedom is freedom to obey the gospel. They have freedom in the gospel, and they're even free not simply to protect their lives, they're also free to give their lives away. And that's exactly what they do. They use their freedom to give their lives away. I want to ask the question, beloved, how are you using your gospel freedom? I told the story earlier of Harriet Tubman, a young black woman who fled barefoot through the night, fleeing chasers, police, dogs, who got someplace and found fantastic, newfound freedom. And what did she do with her freedom? She gave it away. She gave it away. Now let me graduate the illustration. The world is full of slaves. They're not in the South. They're in sin. The world is full of slaves. And they have only one hope. And it's not Harriet Tubman. It's Jesus. And if the world is full of slaves, and Jesus is our leader, our savior, and our captain, and if, beloved, by the grace of God, you have turned the eyes of your faith upon him, you are free. But what will you do with your freedom? Whom shall you serve? How shall you live? Will you run from the fight or straight into it? Will you protect your life? Will you give it away? We stand at a remarkable moment in history, don't we? Because on the one hand, we have so much. 
including freedom. And yet we live in a world that is full of such darkness, such intense slavery. What does the world need from the church? It's for the church to be the church and to boldly use our freedom to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at how deceptive and irrational sin could be. The high priest that day, being quite aware of the visible miracles that had been performed the day before, in that very same day, nonetheless was simply perplexed and went home, yet unbelieving. People stood in the presence of Jesus and saw all that he did. Pilate put him on trial and looked right in his eyes and said, what is truth? The world, O Lord, has proven that seeing is not believing. And yet we believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the power of God, hearing by the word of God, and that you have been pleased not to send angels or to even speak with a megaphone from heaven itself with your own voice, but rather, Lord, to send your church into the world to employ our gospel freedom to rescue many out of slavery, that slavery of sin and unbelief. And so we ask, Lord, that this morning you might be pleased to turn unbelieving hearts to faith, that you would open our eyes wide to see the beauty of the gospel, and that you'd help us, O Lord, even now to sense the profound freedom that we enjoy, both body and soul, and that we would not squander these great things, our time, our talent, our treasure, that young people might be pleased to contemplate a life of serving you, that mature saints in the Lord would be resolved to not simply finish well as though crossing some lowest common denominator of a bar, but to finish really well. Lord, help us to finish really well, to honor your name, that name that offends so many, and yet to our hearts is the sweetest of all, even the name of Jesus. Amen.